Thank you for joining us tonight on the Corbett Report on the Republic Broadcast Network. Uh, we thank you for joining us this evening. We are guest host tonight for James Corbett, who is out of town. Uh, we are honored to uh, be the guest host tonight. I am one of the hosts, James Lane. I'm joined by um, Kevin Hayden and Holland van der Uh Now, Holland and I actually do a radio show on the Logos Radio Network uh, called the Fremont Report on uh, Wednesday nights from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., and uh, Kevin is actually runs a website called truthistreason.net. That, that is correct. It's, it's a website that kind of talks uh, about a lot of different, different topics and uh, just recently started a .tv version. So it's an interesting, interesting endeavor. It's got my hands full. Well, you've got a lot of information on that website that, uh, you know, I always find valuable uh, from prepping to, you know, your unique perspective uh, from, you know, your, your previous endeavors. Uh, Holland and I are actually uh, co-producers. Uh, Holland is the writer. I'm the director on the new documentary out called A Noble Lie. Uh, it's A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. You can go to anoblelie.com to find that documentary. It is the encapsulation of all of the research to date about the Oklahoma City bombing. It uh, conclusively shows that the official story was a lie, and we highly encourage you to go to the website, anoblelie.com, check out the trailer, buy the movie and show this to your friends and family because we are convinced that if we can take away the false flag terror attack from the globalist toolbox, you are actually saving lives through this. And there hasn't been one thing previously that really encapsulated all of the research about the Oklahoma City bombing until now. That documentary is a noble lie. Uh, our goal with that documentary was to actually boil it down to the most provable essence. I mean, I think that if we weren't to you know, go through the painful cuts that we did night after night. Uh, you know, we would have wound up with a 10-hour documentary, uh, but we got it down to two hours, which is the most provable essence, uh, and eyewitness uh, testimony, documented evidence uh, that proves that the official story was a total lie. And I'd like to thank James Corbett for having us on as guest host tonight. James has always been a faithful friend of the truth-seeking effort in Oklahoma City, uh, featuring interviews with Jesse Trentadu and others, myself, of course, but uh, James has always been there having our back oh, whenever, absolutely. whenever we needed truth to get out about a certain aspect of the case. So we're honored to be here, be here to have his back in this short, you know, in this sl slight amount of expression of gratitude on our part to guest host his show. So thank you, James, if you're listening. And thank you, audience, for uh, having us, for actually listening to us. And if you want to get more information on the bombing, watch the trailer at anobelie.com. You can check it out. And uh, I believe, and I've been working on this case for years, that uh, we, we have told, we have reclaimed the true history of Oklahoma City. Yeah, James Corbett is one of the few people that has actually followed the case, you know, in, within the truth movement. Uh, you know, there's only a handful of people that, that can actually speak about it and, and give you details, and James is one of those folks. We've uh, been honored to have him as a guest on our show previously, and, uh, you know, we're very grateful. He's covered uh, various stories like... Terrence Jakey. You can find out more information about Terrence Jakey at tytruth.com. Uh, Terrence Jakey was a true hero at the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, he would save eight people's lives that day. And uh, his uh, ability to go in there without any type of respiration problem calls into question whether or not AMFO is actually the primary explosive used to destroy the Murrah building.
welcome back to the Corbett Report on the Republic Broadcast Network. We thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, we are guest hosts tonight on the Corbett Report. Uh, we are the filmmakers of the new documentary, A Noble Lie. We encourage you to go to noblelie.com, check that out. Uh, but tonight we are going to be talking a little bit about the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about uh, what you can expect from that documentary. And then we also have an, an additional guest host in with us uh, this evening, Kevin Hayden. He runs the website truthistreason.net, and he has some very interesting perspectives on everything from prepping to uh, his personal experience as a law enforcement officer and the Katrina disaster. Yeah, Kevin Hayden, you were involved with the actual, uh, all the stuff going on during Katrina, the martial law scenarios going on, and you actually testified in court about some of the uh, abuses or actually the, the outrages upon individual liberty that occurred at the hands of New Orleans police during that crisis. Would you like to cover that a little? Would um, I? When Hurricane Katrina had hit, I had been a police officer for just a little over a year. I, I was still pretty much a rookie, and um, the the things I saw, um, I, I don't know if you could explain them except for a Hollywood script. Um, some of the things that that really stuck out that that are still with me today, um, as as I kind of continue my journey down the rabbit hole, I guess is. Um, Things like our jail process, uh, if somebody was arrested down there during, during the disaster, um, they were taken to the Amtrak station. <clears throat> and uh, the Amtrak station had been taken over by the NYPD corrections team, uh, members of Immigration and Customs. NYPD? NYPD. Uh, we had agencies from across the country down there. They had descended upon the city to really to help out. And when they first arrived, obviously, you know, we, we welcomed them um, with open arms uh, because the city is a total social breakdown, social collapse. And uh, they very quickly started in on their federal training. Uh, most agencies, most large agencies go through um, various incident command training. And they converted our Amtrak station into the detention center, uh, complete with uh, kennels, for the prisoners, um, placed right on the, the train platform out there. Um, they had members of the California Highway Patrol and Immigrations and Customs patrolling the uh, platforms with shotguns. It, it was such a diverse group of law enforcement all working together to um, really, uh, it looked like a big training exercise. So th they actually did have a detention center on at the Amtrak station. Now, we've heard that theme before. I believe William Luce has covered that in this Camp FEMA series of documentaries about how they convert these train stations to detention centers. In fact, there's one in Oklahoma City. Yeah, it's, it's not like there's a big sign out front that says detention center, but what they do is they take these existing facilities that have all of the components and then take it live. You know, I mean, it only takes a few minutes for, well, you know, less than an hour for the military to harden the perimeter of that facility and use it as a detention facility. Well, yeah, you just throw down some hurricane wire and erect a wooden watchtower and you have Guantanamo Bay. But, I mean, they actually executed that in New Orleans. They did, and this was in the fall of 2005. A lot of people, went, like you said, some FEMA camp documentaries and stuff, um, have been probably over the last few years that's, that's become a bigger issue. And you think about this, this was seven years ago that they were drilling, training, and executing it in a live scenario. I mean, during a national disaster... Um, and and it worked, quite honestly, flawlessly. Um, everybody played their part, including the feds, the uh, the state, and various municipal <clears throat> municipal agencies that were involved. They all um, 
you know, fell back on their federal training. And that, that's what you could expect in another natural disaster. Um, you know, like I said, they, they took a local train station and converted it to a holding cell for people that not only accused of violent crimes during the disaster, um, but for those that were stealing and even curfew violators. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, for just for curfew violators. Curfew violators were thrown into the same uh, kennels. There's about a 10 by 10 foot chain link kennel, and there was probably 10 or 12 of them on each side of the of the rails, and they just threw them all in there together. Well, now, one of the things that <clears throat> William covers in that movie <clears throat> is that, uh, you know, there's training going on within the existing, uh, you know, military uh, training exercises to take these folks in and that may be resisting various things from, you know, weapons confiscation to, uh, you know, compulsory vaccination, you know, and how to actually force them to go through these scenarios. But it sounds like even the federalization of local law enforcement is uh, playing a part uh, in, in, the, in this type of operation. Now, uh, did you actually, you know, witness any com- uh, weapons confiscations? Because I know that the mayor was saying that they were not going to allow uh, for anyone to have weapons at that time. That's correct. The uh, superintendent at the time, superintendent of police, um, Compass, he went in front of a bunch of media and said that uh, only the police will have guns, essentially. And um, and that that was really all it took. The military started confiscating weapons. Uh, various agencies started taking them, um, some of them under the guise of uh, searching empty homes, looking for weapons so that looters don't get them. Um, and and you could argue that you know both sides. Well, of the here fence. in Oklahoma, whenever there's a tornado, if a, if a community gets struck by a major tornado, the first thing that happens is is a, a cordon is thrown around the affected area, and the police go through and pick up all the weapons. That's the first thing they do. So we can see in Katrina, and if you study Katrina and what happened in New Orleans during that time, you're going to see the mechanism for how if there ever is a mass event in this country that calls upon uh, for martial law. Uh, look at what they did in Katrina, because they, like you said, Gavin, they were practicing their training. They were executing their training, and this is how they're going to react, and this is what they're going to do in, in, in the event of some mass disturbance that causes another uh, martial law scenario. Because in Katrina, we had military going house to house, confiscating firearms within the confines of the United States of America. That's not supposed to happen. Well, and there's two excellent videos that you can find on YouTube, one showing the uh, actual military going door-to-door doing those types of operations. There was a, you know, it seemed like it was a fairly well-off family that was actually guarding their property. They came in and took their weapons, had them, uh, you know, cuffed with uh, strip ties and stuff <clears throat> on the side of the road. And one of the, the guys in the military was like, well, you know, it's perfect to think what will happen if a civilian comes around the corner with a weapon. What are they going to have to do? Uh, and then the other was the uh, elderly woman mm-hmm. that actually had a small, was it like a twenty-two it, revolver? It was a relic. It was yeah, a relic. It, was a, it was like one of the oldest guns I've like ever her seen. Like her grandpa, grandpappy's revolver. Yeah, and it was for her own personal protection from looters and the, and the various... Uh, you and know, they things. tackled her like a man and, and, and took her to the ground and hauled her off to jail yeah. because she said she did not want to be evacuated. She was on her property. She had plenty of food and water. She could protect herself and, you know, carry on about your way. I'm fine, young man. And instead, they... they Took her to the ground and they held her off to jail. There, there were several, several cases like that, including some of the local sheriff's departments. Uh, there's a large lake just north of New Orleans, and because most of the roads were blocked, they had military checkpoints at all uh, points of entry and exit to the city. Um, I manned some of these checkpoints with military and with various agencies, and the lake. Um, I guess after a few days, citizens started realizing, "Hey, we can get back into the city. We just take a boat." 
And uh, very quickly, the sheriff's department uh, by there, by the levees, started uh, stopping boats in the middle of the lake, uh, coming on board and seizing all weapons. Uh, this is documented with, um, I believe, St. Tammany Parish, uh, St. Bernard Parish, and several others in um, some of the, the cases that the NRA got involved in, uh, very briefly. But it, it is documented. You have both victims. You have deputies even talking about that, um, that they just came on board and took weapons. So basically, I mean, they're just waiting for the drop of the hat to just throw the Constitution down the toilet. They, I mean, the Constitution is, is basically just something you abide by in normal times, kind of. But if anything becomes exciting, that's all out the window. Yeah. The police can yeah. do whatever they want. We'll deal we with it no later. Right. We have no rights. I mean, and, and it's telling that the first instinct is always to disarm the populace. Why do you always want to disarm the populace? It, is, it, it really boils down to police training. And not that some of these deputies or police officers went out with malice intention to strip citizens of firearms. Exactly. They don't view it as stripping somebody of their right to defend themselves. What they view it as is an armed person. Well, they're they're told it's a threat. Yeah, that's the mentality that they these brainwashed robot police officers. And you're you're saying this as a police officer, former former police officer of five years in New Orleans. Um, I was one of them for a few years. Um, I I didn't question anything. I just went along with uh, with the script and and did everything I could. But um, you know, after after a while, and really um, to get into like Ron Paul and some liberty issues, really started opening my eyes about the Constitution. Yeah. What was your What was your awakening? What What was the catalyst? Uh, well, quite frankly, it was becoming involved with the 2007 2008 Ron Paul campaign. Um, I'd always been a fan of the legal process and knew the Constitution left and right, but realized it, it was like a veil had been lifted you know, off my face of realizing what I was doing as a police officer compared to what the Constitution should say you should be doing, you know, the authority that's vested to you and really what the citizens expect. But uh, when it comes down to the training and the mentality of most police officers, um, some are... Um, you know, they, they really enjoy doing that. But I think a lot of them don't have that, that malice forethought. They just don't realize how uh, horribly they are violating the I mean, law and rights. They're given no context. I mean, they're, they're trained to be police officers, which is a paramilitary organization for a lot of good reasons. But in paramilitary organizations, you follow orders. There's not a whole lot of questions mm-hmm. asked. I mean, and, and that's emphasized in training that you... Follow orders because someone could die if you don't fulfill your mission. So they kind of take advantage of that mindset, which is needed in stressful adrenaline-filled situations, and they and they use it to to strip citizens of their rights. And the police officer, you know, all he knows is he's told that there's chaos going on, there's people with guns, and I want to make things as safe as possible. But the fact is, an armed citizenry protecting its property is the safest environment you can be in. Well, this is why it is so important to support organizations like the Oath Keepers, you know, to oppose the federalization over your local law enforcement and keep their allegiance towards the people that are actually paying their salaries. You know, they're getting these grants from the uh, Homeland Security and various organizations, and their allegiances are no longer to the local population. They're to the federal government, and we see the outcome of that through events like Katrina and uh, and ongoing operations with uh, the, the TSA and Homeland Security. We're going to be back right after this on the Corbett Report.
Welcome back to the Corbett Report on the Republic Broadcasting Network. Thank you for joining us this evening. We are guest hosts. James Corbett is out of town this week. Tonight we are speaking with our guest, Kevin Hayden. He is a former New Orleans police officer, and he also operates the blog truthistreason.net. I highly encourage you to go to that website. There's tons of useful information in there. And I, yeah, I can highly recommend that site. I've, I've got a lot of useful information off that site. Yeah, everything from prepping to the current state of uh, geopolitical affairs. Uh, I will tell you also that, uh, you know, before we went on break, we were talking a little bit about the federalization of local law enforcement, how the allegiance moves from the uh, local constituents to the federal government. And we saw that play out through situations like uh, in California with the medicinal marijuana laws. You have the local sheriff's departments working with the uh, DEA, the federal agency, uh, in confiscating uh, medicinal marijuana over in violation of state law, you know, why? Well, because their major funding is now coming from the federal government, not the local populace. Uh, this is why, you know, handing out cards like Oath Keepers, you can go to Oath Keepers' website. You can download those cards, print them out yourself, and hand those out to local law enforcement and, and encourage them to uphold their oath to the Constitution, not to the federal government's whim. This top-heavy control of local law enforcement is not a good thing, nor is it efficient. What is wrong with local control of your local police force? What is wrong with that? Why does the federal government find that a threat? And why do they seek to uh, circumvent that through funding, through influencing the local police officers to not respond to the local constituents' needs? Kevin, you're in New Orleans. You saw the transformation of the, of the New Orleans police, officer, police department, which obviously had, you know, through reputation, a lot of problems of, of its own. But they actually, they literally changed their appearance at the behest of Homeland Security. They did. Shortly after Katrina hit the city, um, under the guise of changing uniforms due to having some of them lost during the storm, I'm sure you can buy New Orleans police officer uniforms at the costume store. Yeah, it's it's a it's a short sleeve blue button up shirt. Yeah, it's it's, 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 not, it's <laughs> yeah. not a secret. Right? Yeah, it's it's not some secret fabric or anything. <laughs> um, but yes, they the New Orleans Police Department is one of the oldest police departments in this country, and they have a very long standing reputation for their uniform, their appearance, um, and even the badge. The badge is. Um, it's even trademarked by the it's department. It's unique. It's, it's unique. Crescent, it's incredibly. Right? It's a crescent and star. Did they it's, change the badge? They, they didn't change the badge. Okay. But they changed everything else, um, including the color of our shoulder patches. And we went from a uh, essentially a baby blue, a very light-colored blue uniform, um, to this near-black uniform, which um, it really, at the time, police officers didn't mind because we were still paying for our own uniforms as a police officer. We paid for all of our own gear. And now Homeland Security suddenly wanted to buy us new uniforms. How could you turn it down? Exactly. Of course. So, of course, we, we changed our appearance. We changed our rank insignia, the color of everything. And, in fact, we changed the entire look of our police cars. The, the light bars on top uh, went to solid blue LEDs as opposed to our classic New Orleans look of a V-shaped blue and red. Um, a, a lot of things that most people really don't give thought to, but when you start looking at Homeland Security... Is why why are federal officials dictating a local police department's look, the, the shape of their lights? I mean, why? I mean, obviously, that's, that's indicative of the, the level of control they want to exercise over local police departments, but, I mean, that's just, that's just, I mean, that just shows how much the local, I mean, the, the federal officials want to dictate every facet, every police department's individual... You know, actions. Yeah, if if New Orleans, uh, it boiled down to if New Orleans wanted this federal money, they had to toe the line and do exactly what the Fed said. 
And in return, not only did we get all this, all these new uniforms, these new cars, graphics, um, we also got several new armored vehicles. We got a lot of new weapons. Um, well, and, and then you become beholden to that federal money. And I don't want to get too far off topic here, but uh, in the uh, city of Edmond, Oklahoma, we were fighting the uh, Agenda 21 uh, and the uh, city's uh, uh, admission through uh, ICLEI, which is the main uh, NGO which is pushing the Agenda 21 project. Uh, and whenever we talked to the folks that were there, they were like, well, you should have taken this up with the governor previously because this is a mandate can, uh, as part of taking the federal funding from uh, the Obama administration. And I'm like, well, we were fighting that. We defeated it, and the governor circumvented us and signed off on the money anyway and gave it to all of his friends. So, you know, no matter what, you, where you get that money, there are strings attached. There is a larger agenda at play, and we see this now with local law enforcement when they're getting all of this weapons, all of the, the these materials, the armored vehicles, the ty- this type of thing. There, there is nothing. There's no such thing and, as a free lunch. And, and the federal government is not taking control of local police forms because they give a wit about local crime. That they don't care about that. That's, yeah. that's the last farthest thing. Yeah. What's the saying? Uh, uh, when seconds count, police are only minutes away. Yeah, yeah. it's not because they're trying to stop old ladies from getting mugged on the streets. That, that's not that's not the motivation. They want to control local police departments. Quite, quite frankly, and and. Within a year or so after we started receiving the money and the change in our appearance, I started noticing um, going to these these national incident command classes and stuff. Uh, a lot of other agencies around the country started changing, and and you started seeing municipal police agencies going to this uh, midnight navy blue, this almost black uniform, and going to a solid blue uh, police light. And you saw sheriff's departments uh, being classified in a tan, the classical tan color. And it was across the board. It, it took out the individuality of the department of the city, mm-hmm. and which goes along the lines of taking out the individuality of the individual police officer as well. And the and the local interests of the police departments involved. They're, the, I mean, if they're following any federal they, They're following that carrot on a stick um, right back to D.C. Well, and, and, you know, folks, this is, again, indicative of the overall thing that's being pushed across the nation. Local law enforcement is being taken over and used towards the federal agenda, and the, the allegiance is no longer with your local uh, populace. Uh, you know, we highly encourage you to look into these types of things. Go to truthistreason.net. Uh, Kevin's written on this extensively. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to the Corbett Report on Republic Broadcasting Network. Uh, this is James Lane, Holland Van Neuenhoff, and Kevin Hayden. We are guest hosts tonight for James Corbett, who is out of town. Uh, I want to give you a little side note here. Uh, the, the film crew of the uh, Noble Lie, Fremont Films, is going to be at Liberty Fest West. That's going to be in Odessa, Texas, February 11th, 2012, from 5.30 p.m. to midnight at Odessa, in Odessa, Texas, at MCM Grand Hotel. I highly encourage you to go there. You can go to libertyfestwest.com to find out more about tickets. Uh, it's only $10 in advance, 15 at the door. So if you're in the Texas area, I highly encourage you to go there. There's going to be Sheriff Richard Mack, Adam Kokesh, Stephen Molyneux, John Bush, Catherine Bleich, and Heather Fazio, just to name a few of the speakers. So it's going to be a great event. Also, we encourage you to call in tonight at 1-800-313-9443 and join the conversation. 
Uh, speaking of, we're going to go right to a caller. We have Arthur from Georgia. Arthur, do you have a comment or question for our guest this evening? I most certainly do, sir. How you gentlemen doing this evening? Doing awesome. Outstanding. Um, I didn't call to talk about the police, but since you brought them up, just real quick on that, um, I remember back when they were actually called peace officers, and, well, they wore a pair of nice, pretty blue slacks and a white shirt and a tie, and they walked the beat and they talked to you. Of course, then again, I remember before we had police, and all we had was a sheriff and a couple of deputies. So, um, <laughs> but, I would say that that is one phrase, and I've said this a lot of times. The term "peace officer" has disappeared from our vocabulary nowadays, and you no longer know the officer or even see one walking through your neighborhood or walking the beat. Uh, they they stay in their black and whites um, and and try and keep that distance. Well, yeah, you know, and you look at them today, they look more like a paramilitary force. But, you know, putting all that to the side for a moment, something you were talking about earlier when you were talking about, you know, military, the way they act and how they fall back on their federal training. You know, it's bad enough when you got people like Steven Steinhauser. Uh, uh, um, he was with the FBI. I don't know if he's still with them. But shortly after September 11th at a press conference, he said, Unfortunately, we may not be able to tell you why the agent or agents are knocking on your door. Is there a chance some of your civil liberties may slip while we guarantee the security of this country? And then he said, maybe twice. And I'm thinking, first of all, they come knocking on my door. Somebody better tell me why they're there. Somebody better be able to tell me why they're there. But, you know, if that ain't bad enough, you know, I'm one of them ones that documents everything. I like to remember everything. Good. Mm. And I heard, uh, you know, during one of these exercises that they like to call them, like we've seen all around the country going back as far as the 80s. Practice. Black like helicopters didn't exist. Um, but uh, it, uh, a, a soldier by the name of Gostin, and I don't remember his last name, but he was asked a question during an interview uh, while one of these exercises was going on. He was asked if a grand, if a guardsman would shoot a grandmother who was trying to get away from the quarantine. And he looked straight in the face and he said, maybe. You have to use all reasonable force and sometimes that could mean lethal force. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You're going to tell me you're going to shoot some little old, some little old grandma who's trying to get away from you locking her up when she ain't done nothing wrong? I mean, this is absolutely And, and that would be a fellow and, citizen grandmother as well. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's like you were saying, you know, uh, these people just, it, it, they, they, they call it training. Yeah, it's training. It's training you, America. Mm -hmm. I, th I think a lot of them. Um, the job of it, too. They, they lack an ability to ask why or to say no when it's appropriate. There, yeah, there are instances the Exactly. Well, you know, we've seen the history of, uh, you know, what following orders actually winds up for folks. And uh, this is why we were saying that organizations like Oath Keepers are so important, because the oath of those folks are to the Constitution, not to the orders of their superiors. The Constitution is their primary responsibility to, to uphold. And, Arthur, we thank you for your call tonight. Thank you for joining us. And that tells you how... how Oath Keepers have been damned by the mainstream media. They see that as a legitimate threat. They do not want police officers talking 
about the Constitution and following lawful orders. That is not supposed to be on the table. So you see Stuart Rhodes and them being dragged between, you know, mean being uh, basically drawn and quartered on these national news shows because that will not be tolerated because the police officers, as much as, you know, we try to, to dehumanize them ourselves and say, you know, they're all just, you know, uh, thugs, they're human beings. And if they if they do not want Oath Keepers reaching out to their to the people who are going to be doing their dirty work, it's not going to be the elites going door to door taking your weapons. It's going to be police officers, National Guards, going to be military. They do not want their brutalizing class thinking for themselves and say, you know what? I have more in common with the people I'm oppressing than the people giving orders. That 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 will not stand. Well, and how many videos have come up on the Oath Keepers website where they're actually talking about you know local uh, I'm sorry military. Officers, they're saying that, that they will not follow those orders. You know, they will not disarm the American people. They will not uh, round people up into camps. And then when you read the back of it, you think, well, that sounds outrageous. But then you think, well, well most of it. that's already they happened. Done it. They did it in Katrina. They were going door to door, confiscating firearms yep. from American citizens. Now, look at the, the, the Japanese Americans. Most of them born here in the United States, rounded up and taken into concentration camps exactly. during World War II. All of this has it's, happened it's, before. It's already happened. It's not. It's not that outrageous to think that that it could happen again. Well, it will happen again. It, it just needs the right scenario once again, like a, another Katrina. And as as you all know, there are, you can look left and right, and there's a dozen scenarios that could that could play out over the next twelve months, twelve twenty four months, that would give them a perfect national version of Katrina. Now, Kevin, you were actually on uh, PBS with the uh, on one of the episodes of Frontline. Which uh, you know, I think a lot of times they actually do some some decent reporting. But you were actually talking about some of the murders that occurred in New Orleans during Katrina, and I believe you actually gave testimony against some of those officers that were uh, charged. That's that's correct. Um, Frontline, in uh, association with ProPublica, uh, they did a lot of the investigations that brought these cases to light. Uh, the NOPD nor the FBI were even aware of most of these cases until. Uh, Two journalists started looking into police reports, and uh, I ended up giving testimony to a grand jury um, regarding the uh, case with a with a man named Danny, Danny Brumfield. Uh, he was shot in the back at the convention center a few days into the storm. And to make a long story short, at the time, the the police on scene had said that they shot him because he was uh, wielding a, a revolver that he was pointing a gun at them, and so they shot him. And, you know, case closed. It was a open and shut one. Clean shoot. Yeah. And uh, then it turns out when the homicide detective that was investigating it uh, months later, after everything settled down, she was testifying in a civil case. The family of Danny Brumfield was suing the department in the city. Um, I guess she didn't read the coroner's report because he was shot in the back, and she gave testimony that he was shot in the chest. So not only did she not read the coroner's report, when she is a homicide investigator, that's the first thing you read. Um, besides the officer's testimony and incident report from that night. Um, and, and that just, that's a glaring example of the type of investigation and the type, the, the quality of, um, what do they call that? The, the thin blue line where the, the solidarity. It, it has a lot to do with it. Um, it also has a lot to do with incompetence and, and looking the other way when it's, um, what they would consider second rate citizens. Uh, Danny Bromfield, you know, to be perfectly honest, was not some shining example of what we all strive to be. Uh, but he was a human and he had rights. 
Um, and he didn't deserve to be shot they, in the back. That he did not. Um, and on top of that, then in the official report, they said that he had a pair of scissors and not a gun, and that somehow they magically disappeared from the scene. There were no photos taken. There of were the, no of, the, of this dangerous pair of scissors. Yes, yes. That uh, these officers were in their patrol car when this crazed man jumped on the hood and uh, pointed a large revolver at them. And so the passenger stuck a shotgun out the out the side window and shot him once in the chest. That was the official story. And it turns out um, they said he had a pair of scissors. They couldn't produce them. Um, and he had a bullet wound point blank into the back. So, you know, you can do the math. There, there's several scenarios that could play out. That well, I mean, the fact is, if, if it was all on the up and up, obviously we know things can happen, they would have told the truth from the beginning. Exactly. If they didn't, obviously they had something to hide. It, exactly. I, I knew one of the officers personally. I knew the driver of that car. He was, he was not the one that actually pulled the trigger. I'm a really great officer. Um, I worked with him on several Mardi Gras details. And, um, yeah, <clears throat> I just really liked him. You know, I would say he was a good police officer. And he got caught up in, in that, that culture. You know? Well, I mean, there's a difference between physical bravery and moral bravery. And, and if you study the two issues, I mean, uh, you can find a fair amount of people who are willing to, to, to stand up in the face of enemy fire and, and, and put, their, put their, their backsides on the line. But what is rarer is moral bravery when you're willing to put your reputation and, and, the, and the opinion of your peers on the line to do what is right. That is a rarer and braver thing to do is to stand up for the right thing in the face of consensus. Well, and, and beyond the website Oath Keepers, I highly encourage everyone to go to the website InjusticeEverywhere.com. Again, that's InjusticeEverywhere.com. This is the National Police Misconduct Statistics and Reporting Project. This is an independent group of people that actually compile statistics on police misconduct throughout the country. And, uh, you know, we really uh, support their, their work. They go through, and, and each day, you, if you sign up for their news feed, you will get a daily report of misconduct throughout the country. Uh, I believe it's been uh, almost a decade since the uh, federal government or even the state governments have done compiled any type of statistics on police misconduct. And obviously, as the expansion of the police state powers continue to grow, the someone watching the watchers is going to be even more important. And when we see the more federal control over our local police officers and that the federal government does not compile statistics on police abuse, that's another incentive for them to follow the follow the toe on that. We have uh, Lark from Texas on the line. Lark, do you have a comment or question for our guest this evening? Uh, yeah, just a couple of things I'd like to insert in the conversation. Very good one, I might add. Uh, and I appreciate you guys' uh, research. Oh, thank you. And uh, not to be antagonistic, but as a, uh, a word of uh, caution, I'd like to point out that there has been some... Uh, 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 two points I want to bring up, and first of all, is regarding Oath Keepers. And uh, I want to check out a website called subvertednation.net. Regarding that, you might want to do a search for a website called uh, Living Outside the Dialectic and look specifically at the uh, Yale University uh, uh, law lectures to see how uh, attorneys are being educated today in our uh, uh, universities in America today, and uh, uh, regarding the uh, police officers, sheriff's departments uh, nationwide, I want to look at an institution called uh, JINSA, that's J-I-N-S-A, 
www.cops.org. And uh, also take a look at the uh, so-called COPS program, which is uh, community-oriented policing services, and, and see how the sheriff's departments and the metropolitan police departments nationwide have been, frankly, subverted to uh, an agenda supporting uh, uh, United Nations at Agenda 21. I wonder if you, you, you or your guest have any, any thoughts about it. Can, can you kind of... Can you give us a, a quick breakdown for those that maybe aren't on a computer or haven't heard of those websites? Um, you, you were talking about how our attorneys are being trained, and then also I think you mentioned um, Jinsa, I believe. Can you give us just a, a real quick breakdown of those? Uh, sure, just a quick definition. Uh, Jinsa is the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, and the uh, the principal. Uh, uh, I didn't mention this word communitarian, but. Uh, most people that know my voice on this network uh, know I've been talking about this for three years now. But uh, my particular study is communitarian law and what I call religio-philosophy. And uh, the uh, universities and the public school systems across America are entirely socialist. And the particular brand of socialism today, which is in fashion, is called communitarianism. And this... Uh, has inculcated itself into law, so-called American law, and superseded uh, what the communitarians will tell you, harmonized or balanced uh, American constitutional law with uh, uh, international exactly. law. A, a synthesis. It's a Hegelian dialectic. They, right. they, they take the Constitution and then they'll take international law and they'll blend it together and come out with their own favorite outcome. That is exactly. the classic, you know, reaction action solution. I'd like to thank you for calling in, and for those listening, you can definitely look up those links. Yeah, and we are even seeing most recently with, uh, what is it, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Ginsburg. She's been on a little tour recently, and uh, she's talking about how these uh, new, you know, revolutions within the Middle East. No, she told. Uh, she the, just said they, the should, not, yeah, yeah, they she, should not base their Constitution on the United States uh, Constitution. That, that's very telling when, it, when a Supreme Court Justice of the United States tells, uh, you know, these these reforming people in Egypt that you sh you know the, the constitution is not the ideal document to follow you know your job is to interpret this document for to balance our rights against the powers of government and you're telling people that the constitution is not a good thing. well you know and how many people <clears throat> have come to that conclusion you know i i know that uh you know deborah stevens and and you know randy uh and the rest of them on rule of law you know that that radio show they do extensive uh you know information about uh, pro se type legal work and everything using common law but um you know harman taylor was actually involved with the Oklahoma City bombing case. He tried to get a stay of execution on Timothy well, McVeigh to actually uh, get more information from him because he said it was actually unconstitutional for them to move a murder trial from the state of Oklahoma to the state of Colorado. And they took his petition and returned it and said it was frivolous and without merit. They basically called the U.S. Constitution frivolous and without merit within their judicial system. And is saying that the capital letters, uh, United States of America... Uh, supersedes, you know, whatever we comprehend as common law. And the people that are being taught in within these, uh, you know, law schools now are learning that this is the, this is the standard. And, you know, every once in a while they prance the Constitution out. Uh, for lip service. Yeah, for yeah. lip service and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, you got a Second Amendment right, whatever, and then move on. But really when it comes to, you know, the practical matters of trying to get, 
uh, truth and justice through the, the judicial system, you're, you're stymied every step along the way because they're not playing by the rules that you think that they are. And it's in every elected official basically in this country, with, with the exception of few, they view the Constitution as an obstacle. They That's do. A- I had just recently heard a soundbite, and I couldn't say uh, who who he was talking to, but it was actually from President Obama, uh, which I try and avoid listening to. But uh, he he had said very briefly that the Constitution was preventing him from forcing Congress to do certain things, and he sounded very shocked about this. And it, I almost I wish I had a rewind button on my radio. This to is hear from that a again. supposed constitutional scholar. Uh, yeah, exactly. That that was also on a review board, I believe, for legal paperwork, you know, through Yale or wherever he went to college. But, uh, well, you know, you can check out Michael Badnerick's uh, constitutional class uh, on, based on his book, It's Good to Be King. You can find that online. There's plenty of sources on that, and he will show you how that uh, the Constitution is really no longer in play unless you stand up and take charge for it. Uh, we're going to be back right after this message, folks. Welcome back to the Corbett Report on the Republic Broadcasting Network. Uh, we appreciate you joining us with us this evening. Uh, this is going to be the last segment. Uh, James Corbett is actually on the road, on vacation, and we are guest hosting tonight. Uh, we have James Lane, uh, Kevin Hayden, and Holland Van den Neuenhoff. Um, myself and Holland were involved in the making of the documentary film A Noble Lie. You can find that at anoblelie.com. Uh, this will change forever the way you uh, view the true nature of terrorism. It totally deconstructs the official story and shows it to be completely false. Uh, one of the aspects of things that we cover in that uh, documentary is Officer Terrence Yakey. Terrence Yakey was one of the first police officers on the scene that day and was a real hero. He saved eight people's lives that day. And uh, we document that through in, in the movie and uh, interview his family members. Uh, the fact that he was on the scene within minutes and did not have any problem with respiration shows that AMFA was not used as a primary explosive to bring down the Murrah building because the hallmark of ammonium nitrate in fuel oil is an, uh, an ammonium nitrate gas cloud, and he had no problem with respiration. He was also contradicting the official story through various means, and he was on his way to visit a friend. He called him and said that I have to shake this Fed and then I'll meet you there. He was going to drop some of the documents that he had off in storage. He never made it. Uh, he was uh, found in a field. He uh, had supposedly cut his arms uh, and, uh, and his neck and then drug himself over a mile away through a field and then shot himself with a small caliber weapon at a downward angle from the top of his skull out through his jaw at a uh, far enough distance not to leave powder burns on his skull. This was declared a suicide. Uh, whenever his family members said that he was not suicidal, he had everything to live for. He was uh, getting promotions. He was reconciled with his wife. He got the key to the city, that he had everything to live for, and that he had never expressed any suicidal thought to them. The police department told him that he was that they were crazy and they watched too much TV and they need to just go ahead and go home. This is the price to pay for, for subverting your authority to the federal authorities because your agenda, the local agendas, are secondary to whatever political agenda is driving the federal agenda. The local police departments, we ground down. We saw that in the wake of Oklahoma City when Terrence Yankee was gunned down and no autopsy was performed on his body. And the fact that he was killed. I have been approached by police officers myself who brought up Terrence Yankee. They knew he was murdered. And the reason he was murdered was to keep his mouth shut. The evidence he was collecting disappeared from his car. 
and also to silence the voice of every other first responder. And there are many. We interview them in our movie, Police Officer Don Bounty, whose life was also threatened by federal agents, that they will kill you if you talk about what you see. So this, police officers, if you're still, still going to play along with the game and take the federal money and, and play the federal playbook, remember, you're disposable. If you, if you come in the way of the federal agenda, they will kill you and they will get away with it. Well, these are the types of things that you're going to find in the documentary, A Noble Lie, is uh, eyewitness testimony and uh, just the documented evidence. We boil it down to the most provable facts. And this is going to be the last time that some of these folks will ever give an interview. Uh, they, many of them told us, you know, that they're, they're, they're just tired. They, they're worn out on trying to, to get the truth out on this. And so this was the last chance to really encapsulate all of the research from the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee, uh, in the in the early years to the more recent stuff through Dr. Winnie Painting and Jesse Trinidu, who was trying to investigate the death of his uh, brother, Kenneth Trinidu, who was brutally murdered at a federal transfer facility in Oklahoma. And in his research, it led him to the Oklahoma City bombing. And so, uh, again, we highly encourage you to go to anoblelie.com. Check out truthistreason.net, which is Kevin's website. We uh, definitely appreciate you guys joining us this evening. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of information that you can find in that documentary on the website. Uh, James Corbett will be back with you, I believe, next week. I think he has guest hosts all this week. And uh, James is, again, he's a great guy. And thank you for uh, tuning into his show tonight. Uh, we hope to uh, hear you uh, be on the show again soon. Yes, it's been an honor. And James, if you ever need her back again, we got it.